Good morning, City Light Church. Good to be with you guys. My name is Gavin. I'm one of the pastors here at City Light. And uh, let me say congratulations. You all survived 2014. We're here to face another year together. And uh, it's a new year. And uh, we've got a new series and a new book of the Bible. It's not a new book of the Bible, but it's uh, new to our sermon series. We're going to study the book of the Gospel of Luke. And so if you would open up your Bibles, turn with me to Luke 3 that Sarah just read. Um, I'll let you know the plan for City Light Church, at least for the first several years, is this. In Christmas, uh, from Christmas until Easter, we're going to study one of the four Gospels. Gospels being the first four books of the New Testament. They serve as sort of a biographical sketch of the life and ministry of Jesus when he was on the earth. Each of the different four Gospels kind of emphasize a different aspect of Jesus' person and work. And uh, we want to be very familiar with, acquainted with, and fellowship with Jesus. And so we're going to spend a lot of time in the Gospels. Uh, And so every year we'll take a different Gospel. And then Christmas... We'll study Jesus' birth um, uh, through that book. Uh, Throughout the spring, we'll take a look at his life and ministry, and then in the same gospel, look at his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension at Easter time. So that's what we'll be doing every spring for the next several years. Uh, until we get through the Gospels, maybe we'll just start them over again. And uh, the rest of the year, we're going to go through Old Testament books, New Testament epistles, etc., etc. Now Luke, the book that we're actually studying, uh, is the longest of all of the Gospels. It's 24 chapters long, so we're going to take two years to get through the Gospel of Luke. So from uh, Christmas until Easter this year, we're going to hit the first half. We'll get through chapter 15, and then next spring, uh, 2016, we'll hit the second half of Luke. The title of our series is Accomplished Among Us. Accomplished Among Us. Title comes from the very first chapter of the book of Luke, where the author, Dr. Luke, kind of states his thesis for the book. He uh, says in the first few verses that many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us by Jesus. He says that uh, it seemed good to him that he should also present an orderly account of what Jesus has done among them as eyewitnesses. And so it's our desire that we would be very familiar with what Jesus has accomplished among us. And so uh, under the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, Luke wrote this book. We're going to read it and study it. A quick note about the author, Luke. Uh, We'll call him Dr. Luke. He was a medical doctor, a physician. He was a man of the sciences. He studied anatomy, physiology, medicine, and the like. He was a travel companion and personal um, uh, doctor to the Apostle Paul. And uh, I thought it was fitting, I don't know if it's because the, the geographical uh, location of our church in the city, but there's a lot of medical professionals in our congregation. And so uh, maybe you've wondered where the faith and medicine intersect. I feel like uh, Dr. Luke does a good job of intersecting those well in his life and his ministry, his ministry to the body and to the body of Christ. Uh, additionally, uh, you may have wondered, there's a very small percentage of those within the Christian faith that would say, you know what, we don't need doctors. We don't need medicine, health insurance, and the like. And they might even point to verses in the Gospel of Luke and say, see, Jesus heals. We just need to have faith and pray. Or they might look um, at the sequel to the book of Luke, uh, the book of Acts, and say, see, the Holy Spirit is the one who heals uh, uh, through his church. We just need to pray and have faith. Uh, But these people often overlook the fact that Luke and Acts were written by a physician, Dr. Luke, whose point was not that we don't need physicians, but that Jesus is the great physician. 
Sometimes he heals miraculously without the aid of physical physicians. We believe that. We pray for that. Uh, Oftentimes, he will heal through the work of good doctors and physicians, and um, we're thankful for that as well. So if you're a doctor, nurse, medical professional, a physical therapist, a lot of med students, I want to say thanks for your work in ministry. Uh, God uses you much like he did Dr. Luke. So as a science-minded guy, a doctor, Luke tends to be very detailed in his account of what Jesus did. Uh, For this reason, his gospel is very long. Uh, His book of Luke, as well as his sequel, Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, or the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the church, um, compile the largest segment of scripture in the New Testament, uh, written by one author. A lot of folks wrongly assume that Paul wrote the largest section of the New Testament. He didn't. He did by number of books, but most of them are small epistles. It was actually Luke who wrote the largest contribution by pure volume, uh, two books equaling roughly 28% of the Bible. And uh, so we're going to enjoy this spring reading Luke and, and seeing great detail about the life and ministry of Jesus. And I want it to be more than just information, but that it would be worshipful, that we would pay attention to the nuances and the details, and we would see why Dr. Luke chose to include this information for our edification and for our worship. And so here's how we're going to kick it off. Today's day one. You came on a good week. Uh, we're going to start in chapter three, actually. The first two chapters of Luke detail uh, the events surrounding Jesus' birth that we looked at on Christmas Eve. And so we're going to pick up in chapter three today. And uh, here's how we're going to do this. We're going to read one chapter a week. We're going to study, set our roots down in one chapter a week. And so each week this spring, we will preach a sermon, one sermon from each of the chapters. Because of the length, we can't preach the whole chapter, and so here's the challenge, okay, City Light, church-wide. I want all of us throughout the week, this week, set your roots down in Luke 3. Uh, Every week, I want us to look at at the same chapter in our city groups and our personal devotional time to the Lord. Um, Would you get to know Jesus through the book of Luke? Uh, Would you make Luke your closest quiet time companion? Would you underline Luke in your Bible? Hear the voice of God speaking to you through Luke in the Bible. Uh, As well in our city groups, we're going to challenge people to really pay attention to Luke, study that. Uh, Pastor Tyler has put together a great resource, Gospel of Luke, accomplished among us. Um, uh, Grab one of these study guides, devotions, uh, city group notes and the like. It's 177 pages. That's fantastic, Tyler. I don't know when he does that. Uh, They're eight bucks in the back, free if you can't afford it. Uh, They're also free online and free at the Kindle app store, so you can get a PDF uh, Kindle copy that way. So we've been through the birth of Jesus, and today, this morning in chapter 3, Dr. Luke is going to introduce us to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a forerunner of the ministry and life of Jesus. He was also a close relative, likely a first cousin of Jesus, and uh, his name's a little misleading uh, because he wasn't Baptist. I don't believe he was Presbyterian or maybe even CMA for that matter, uh, but he was a follower of his cousin, the Lord Jesus, and a better name for him might be John the Baptizer because his ministry was to preach repentance. It was a baptism of repentance, so he would call people to repent, turn from their sins, trust Jesus for forgiveness and to be his leader, and uh, they would then be baptized, uh, symbolic of the repentance that they just went under. And so... Um, I want to preach to us this morning about this theme of repentance. Repentance. Title of the sermon is this, Repentance, Bulldozers and Backhoes. Bulldozers and Backhoes. And this morning I want to talk about what is repentance, why do we repent, who do we repent to, how does this whole repentance thing work. We're going to talk about repentance. 
Now, this week, Chris asked me what I preached on. I said, well, we're talking about repentance. He said, well, way to start off the new year, new series on a really light, really happy, fun, easy topic. Repentance, right? I said, hey, man, you read Luke 3 and tell me what else we're going to preach on. Because when I read John the Baptist, he kind of had one sermon that he preached. He was a one-trick pony, and his message was repent, repent, turn, repent. Now, I do have to acknowledge, isn't it true, in our culture in the present day, the idea of repentance is often a heavy, condemning, religious kind of word. When I was an undergrad student at UNL, uh, the only time I heard the word repent was from a man in ill-fitting pleated khaki pants who stood on a box outside the student union with a giant sign and a big King James leather-bound Bible and would yell at us to repent of your smoking cigarette ways and the short shorts. You're all going to hell, you know, and we'd avoid eye contact and just try to get to our next classes Occasionally, a more zealous student would argue back, and the whole thing was very uncomfortable. And isn't it true that for many of us in the room, this idea of repentance doesn't bring about a favorable idea, but kind of this negative, religious, heavy, uncomfortable idea, right? Maybe you hear the word and you automatically kind of have the idea of the fundamentalist open-air preacher yelling at you, or you automatically kind of hear that word in like a southern accent and a real condescending tone, like, boy, you better repent. You hipsters and your skinny jeans and cigarettes and craft beers, you better repent, you know. (laughs) And you do. I might agree with them in that that instance. Cigarettes are of the devil, but I don't don't got a verse. That's just my opinion. Um, So I think you should repent. But but I want you to see this morning uh, that repentance, scripturally, is not a heavy, religious, condemning word. Uh, It is an offensive word. It does offend because it tells us we're wrong and that we have to turn, but But it's not a dirty word, it's a gracious invitation. Gracious because it invites us to turn from whatever second best thing we were pursuing in our lives to repent, to turn, and to put our affections and our hope in something eternally better, Jesus Christ. To follow him, love him, serve him, obey him, which in the end, that's so much joy and worship. I want you to know this morning that repentance is a great term, and I want City Light to be a church that learns how to repent that we'd be people that are quick to repent of sin, rebellion, religiousness, that we would be a church with a ministry much like John the Baptist that prepares the way for Jesus, that calls people to repent, and that we ourselves would be in the habit of repenting continually and turning our hearts back to Jesus. And so I'm going to talk about repentance this morning. And uh, we're going to look at the first four verses that Sarah read for us this morning. Great job, Sarah. You pronounce the words better than I will in just a moment. And uh, as we go through the first 14 verses... I'm going to stop and address three three key points. Number one, what is repentance? What does it mean to repent? What's that biblical idea? Number two, um, how does repenting affect our religion? And number three, how does repenting affect and influence our rebellion, religion and rebellion? So number one, what is repentance? Let's get right into the verses this morning. Uh, Verse one, here we go. We're kicking off Luke. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor over Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis in Lysania, tetrarch of Abilene, thank you Lord, during the high school priest, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Okay, already we see some of Dr. Luke's detail, right? 
Uh, he's going to give us all the leaders. He starts with the national leader. He wants us to know who is the emperor in Rome. Uh, his name was Tiberius. Um, um, this was the second ever emperor of Rome right after Caesar Augustus. He ruled and reigned from 17 AD to 37 AD, most of Jesus' adult life in ministry. Um, and he's going to tell us the various regional leaders and area governors. He's also going to tell us uh, who's the high priest, the religious leaders of the time. And uh, I think Dr. Luke does this because he wants us to know that this is history. He's not just dispensing some inspirational information. It's not just religious folklore. He's saying, listen, this is truth. This is real. This happened in history, and we should dial in and pay attention. This is truth. And this is reality, and this is history. He says that this all takes place in the 15th year of the uh, jurisdiction of Tiberius. So we know from history, secular history, etc. cetera, uh, this is approximately 29 AD in history when this happens. He goes on, verse 3, talking about John. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, that's the river, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Okay. There's our word, repentance. There's the ministry of John the Baptist. He was a man who would tell people, repent. The king is coming, repent, repent, repent. So what does the word repentance mean? Uh, what is John telling these people to do? Well, let me break down kind of the, um, the word study of this. If you just think about the word repent, the second half of that word is pent, which comes from the Latin word penser, which means to think or to ponder. Makes sense, right? If you're pensive, what does that mean? You're thoughtful. You're deep in thought. So that's pent. That's the word. Uh, re, what does that mean? To do again. To do over, right? To rewind. To review. To, and so to re, do over, pent, think, means to reconsider. A lot of people think repentance is primarily about external behavioral patterns. No, it influences that, but it's not primarily about that. This message of repentance is to think again. It's to reconsider. Um, the Old Testament idea of repentance had a lot to do with the heart. It's talking about the inner man, and the idea of turning from whatever you had going on and, and to reconsider, to reorient yourself around God. And so it's an internal thing. It's something that happens in the mind, and it's something that happens in the heart. It's to reconsider whatever else you were thinking. It's to refeel whatever else you were feeling. Dallas Willard, a philosopher, theologian, defines repentance this way. He says, repentance is to reconsider your strategy for living. Repentance simply means to reconsider your strategy for living. The idea of City Light is that before Jesus shows up in your life, you kind of have your own strategy for living. You've got some rules that you've decided to live by. You've got some goals that you were chasing. You've got some things that you thought were important to you. You had some priorities that you were pursuing. You had a definition of what a successful life for yourself looked like, and you had a strategy to get there. And repentance is the idea to go, you know what? I need to reconsider everything. I need to rethink, I need to reorient my life about something new. And so what is that new thing? Why is John calling us to repent, to think again, to reconsider, to change our hearts and minds? Here's uh, where he's going to um, kind of let us know why. Look with me at verse 4. It's going to be a quote from uh, Isaiah chapter 40. It says, And as it was written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. The Lord is coming. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, 
and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. Let me unpack this, because we might not get it uh, with our cultural context and understanding. See, in ancient days, not many roads were paved like they are today. In fact, the only people who paved roads were the most significant, wealthy, influential, affluential kings of the day. The majority of roads for peasants and the like weren't paved at all. Uh, They were dirt paths, so you'd have animals uh, with carts and uh, people and foot traffic that, that, that would just go down the road. And it would rain, and it'd be muddy, and you'd go down the road, and it would leave ruts in the road and footprints in the road. There would be potholes in the road. It would look like Dodge Street in spring in Omaha. You know, just completely out of control. Uh, additionally, they didn't have many bridges in the lower area, uh, income areas. And so the, the roads would go through valleys. They'd go through creeks. You'd have to trek through the creek. They'd go over high mountains as they didn't have excavators to kind of blaze a path. So there was no department of roads to maintain the highways. But whenever a king was about to go on a journey, he'd do two things. Number one, he'd send, send ahead of him heralds. People that would say, the king's coming, get ready. So they'd all press their nicest clothes and get ready and and clean the house and do the dishes and get the city ready. Number two, he would send ahead of him um, civil engineers and laborers to prepare the roads. And so they would go before him in anticipation of the king coming. And if there was a rock in the road, they would move it. If there were pits and valleys and ruts in the road, they would fill them in. If it went through a creek, they would build a bridge or fill in the creek. If it went over a hill, they would find a new route. They would would pave the road for the king. But listen to what Isaiah is saying. He's not talking about moving boulders and filling in ruts. What does he say? He says, bring low the mountains. Fill in the valleys. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying the ultimate king is coming. It's an illustration. Do you see it? It's a sermon illustration. He's saying a king is coming, but this is unlike any other king. This is the king of kings. This is the ultimate king, and he's coming to earth, and he's coming into your life, and anything that's in the way, get it out of the way, because the king is coming to rule and reign. He's a king that leads, that guides, that rules and reigns, that has jurisdiction over everything in our lives. And John's saying anything that's in the way, get rid of it. Repent. Anything that's in the way. He says not only that he's coming to rule and reign, but what's the very last phrase of that Isaiah verse say, verse 6, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. See, he's not just a God that wants to come in and rule and reign. He's a God that comes in first to save. Here's what Dr. Luke is putting before us, City Light. We are a people who are dead in our sin, sinful in our condition, sinful in our actions, attitudes, behaviors, what we do, what we don't do, and we're sinners, and we're dead in our sin, and furthermore, as, as spiritually dead sinners, we rule and reign in our lives, don't we? We are the kings of our own life and our own destiny, and we pursue all kinds of little goals and aspirations, little idols and, and little ideals of our heaven of retirement or grandkids or whatever it is, pleasures that pursue us. And we are dead in our sins, but he's saying a new king has come. He is your savior who wants to free you from the consequences of your sin, and he is the king who wants to liberate you from all of your false little kingdom ideas. This whole world that you've constructed that's going to disappoint you someday, he wants to invite you into a new kingdom, his kingdom. Whole new set of values, way of doing life, whole new reward system, whole new way of doing things, worshiping the king that will go on for eternity. And John is announcing to the whole world, you better get ready. Man, plow down the high places, fill in the valleys, do whatever it takes. 
What he's saying is whatever you had going on before Jesus showed up, reconsider it. Whatever direction you were headed before Jesus came, reconsider it. Whatever you found to be a priority before Jesus showed up in your life, reconsider that now. Whatever you thought was going to get you through 2015, friends, reconsider it. Whatever you thought was going to ease your guilty conscience, reconsider. Whatever you thought was going to bring you purpose, meaning, direction, value to your life, reconsider it. Reconsider everything in light of Jesus coming. It changes everything. Reconsider it. That's repentance. It's repentance. It's to look at our sin, to look at Jesus, say, you know what? Just kidding. I changed my mind. I'm with him. Right? I'm going to turn from that. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to turn from my little kingdom that I created. I'm going to follow his. It's a change of mind. It's a change of heart, and it results in a change of behavior and pattern in our lives. Now, City Light, I want to press this in and apply it in two different directions. Um, From this text, I want to apply in two ways I think we need to repent as a church and as individuals in 2015. They both come right from the text. The first one might surprise you a little bit as we think about repentance, and uh, the very first one is this. We need to repent of any area of religion. We need to repent of our religion. We need to get the bulldozers out. If there's any hint of moralistic religion, we need to plow it down and repent of our moralistic religion in 2015. Let me uh, tell you what I mean by that, and then I'll show it to you from the text. I would define moralistic religion this way. Moralistic religion is using God's laws to earn God's love. The mantra of religion is this, if I, then God. If I, then God. That's religion. If I am a certain kind of person, then God will love me. If I follow the rules, then God will accept me. If I am an exceptional person, then God will bless me. If I achieve, then God will receive. If I, then God, that's religion. But listen, the gospel of the kingdom of God, the King Jesus His gospel is in every way antithetical. The gospel says this. The mantra of the gospel is, because God, I. Because God accepts the unacceptable, I'm accepted. See, it starts with God. Because God rescues sinners, I'm saved. Because God sent Jesus to do all the achieving, I'm received before I've done anything. Because God sent Jesus to do for me what I could never do for myself, I have been forgiven, accepted, adopted into the family of God. Not because of me, but because of God. God's gracious. God's loving. God extends grace to the undeserving. It's the opposite of religion. And religion might seem harmless. right? You might think, well, religious people are generally good people. They don't cause a lot of trouble. You don't often see them in jail. But that's not the attitude of Scripture toward the religious. It's one of the most dangerous places to be, is to be very, very religious. Jesus was much harsher with the religious elite than he ever was the tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners. Look at how John the Baptist addresses the religious folks. It's not very kindly. Verse 7, And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, not a compliment, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Think that got their attention? In case you were curious, that wasn't a compliment in that day either, right? They didn't like keep pets as uh, snakes as a pet, and it wasn't like you little puppy. No, a snake is a snake. 
especially to the Jewish religious audience that would have been very familiar with their Old Testament scriptures that knew even since the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, snakes have always been symbolic and representative of sin, the devil, foolishness, and rebellion. He's saying, you proud religious people are snakes. That's harsh. Remember, these are good religious people. They burned a vacation day to wander out to the wilderness to watch this dude preach and baptize them. And what's he say? You're a bunch of snakes. Why? Because they would never accept the free grace of God if they didn't first come to terms with the fact that they were snakes. City Light, we have to be willing to be offended to come into the kingdom of God. Apart from God's grace, guess what this room is right here? We're a brood of vipers. That's us. That's us. We're a brood of vipers. The most loving thing John could call these people is a brood of vipers. That they would come to terms with who they were or they would never turn from their religion. Look what he says. What is the fruit of repentance for the religious folks? It says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So where these people would have gone in their heads and hearts and maybe with their mouths, they would have said, whoa, 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 John, but I'm a child of Abraham. They're saying, because I'm a child of Abraham, a Jewish elite, God must love me. Because I grew up in the right family, God must love me. Because I, there's the religion, went to the right church tradition, God must accept me. Because I know the right rules, God must approve of me. Because I have the right friends, growing with the right crowd, got my kids in the right schools, listen to the right music, I go to City Light Church, I'm a good person, then God must love you, me. And what does John say? He says, no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. He says, God isn't interested in your religious pedigree. He's able to rise up sons of Abraham from the rocks. He's interested in your heart, right? And he's saying, listen, this religious attitude is appalling to God because God doesn't love you because you're lovable. God is a God of grace. God doesn't love the deserving because all of us are sinners and ill-deserving. And God gives love, mercy, salvation, grace, and he does it by, as a gift. Unmerited, undeserved. But the religious want to earn it, merit it, so they can be self-righteous, pompous, smug, proud, looky me, good for you. (laughs) City Light, I think we're guilty of moralistic religion anytime we think God owes us something because of our moral performance. Anytime we feel like God is in our debt because of the way we lived our lives, we are guilty of moralistic uh, religion. And it's a pernicious and poisonous attitude. Uh, And the reason why it's so dangerous and poisonous is it takes our eyes off of God and his grace towards us, and it puts us on us and our performance to God. And what is the fruit of that in our lives? Number one, um, it could be guilt, shame, embarrassment. I'm not living up. I'm in despair, I haven't kept the rules, I'm not good enough, or it can be pride. Pompous, arrogant, down the nose, you sinners, right? Both of these, not good. That's religion. City Light, let me just press this in. Because I realize it's like 14 below outside, and you guys all drove into City Light. You know what that means? This is a good group of people. But let me also say, our goodness could be the most dangerous thing about us. Church going, Devoted people, tithers, Bible study leaders, and the like. And our goodness is fine, but it becomes dangerous if at any point we think that God loves us because we've been lovely or lovable. Let me just preach the gospel into us for just a second. 
because this is most likely a lot of the religious group right here, I want you to know God's not keeping score on you anymore, right? Some of you live like God is following you around with a, with a checklist, and he's keeping score, and you've, listen, he's not keeping score anymore. Why? Because he kept score on Jesus. He kept score on Jesus, and Jesus got an A+. Plus. Perfect righteousness of God, and it's through faith that Jesus' A-plus is credited to you. And guess what? The pressure's off. You don't have to pass the test anymore. Jesus did it for you. And so uh, may your New Year's resolution for 2015 be to chill out. Relax. We don't worship God out of duty. We worship God out of delight. We don't obey God out of guilt, shame, and fear. We obey God out of gratitude. We don't relate to God as the, as the judge who's looking down at us. We relate to God as our loving Father that we want to please and obey because he loves us and we love him. City Light, would we repent of any ounce, any ounce of religion this year? Man, I never want City Light to be the religious church, and may it be far from us that any of us would be religious. Uh, would we repent of that in 2015? We're not going to be a people who compete, who compare, who perform, who strive. City Light, we will be a humble, thankful, approachable people, liberated from religion, rich recipients of grace. Amen? Amen. Number two, how does repentance affect our rebellion? Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, see, there's another side to this, too. Um, I want to talk. Number two is, um, how is it that we need to repent of rebellion in 2015? I would define rebellion this way. If religion is using God's laws to earn God's love, rebellion is disregarding God's laws altogether. The mantra of religion is, well, God saved me by grace. It's not about my moral performance. Jesus already got the A+, so I can do whatever I want, right? Let the sin abound, right? I'm free to sin. That's the mantra of the rebellious. And, And I really want to press this one into our church because I think this is a popular misapplication of the Bible, misapplication of the gospel, right? And I think that a culture of rebellion often rises up in churches like City Light that champion grace because we rightly understand imputed righteousness. It's not about us. It's about Jesus's gift righteousness to us. And we'll misapply that and say, so we can do whatever we want. We can pursue sin. Um, This idea, how do I say it? Let me put it this way. The idea that Jesus saved me by grace, therefore I'm free to sin, is not the gospel. That's not the gospel. In fact, it's rooted in the wrong understanding of sin. Because I'm free to sin is not good news, that's bad news. I'm free to sin, uh, we need to understand the nature of sin itself. Listen, since the very beginning in the garden, sin has always promised life and fulfillment, pleasure and joy, but it's always delivered death, destruction, dysfunction, always, right? The snake in Genesis 3 offered our first parents the fruits that if you eat it, you'll be like God. You'll enjoy life. You'll live. And they took one bite. And what came with that one bite? Death and dysfunction, stress, distance, right? And guess what? Ever since that time, we have been duped by sin because it promises us life and it promises us satisfaction, but it delivers us death and dysfunction and sin and separation. And so to say, I'm free to sin, that's good news. No, that's horrible news. Sin will kill you. Sin is destructive. If you've trusted in Christ for grace and forgiveness, will you pay the eternal penalty for your sin? No, Jesus did it for you. But might you pay the earthly penalty? Yes. And are the stakes high? Yes. It will destroy you. It 
will destroy you. Sin is never, never good news. When we repent, it's a change of mind. It means we see the whole world different, right? We have a change of heart. We realize, oh, I realize now that greed doesn't fulfill me. God is actually my treasure, right? We realize, oh, lust doesn't satisfy me. Christ is actually my real pleasure, isn't he? Oh, drunkenness isn't my escape. God is my true refuge, isn't it? Right? The extramarital affair, the one more trip to the casino, the one more stop on the porn shop, uh, that isn't the adventure my heart was searching for anyway, was it? No, I was created for the adventure of a life in relationship with God. See, it's a change of mind, it's a change of heart. And, and the gospel says, your sins have been forgiven, now you're free to obey. You're free to enjoy life and joy as it was intended to be. That's the good news, liberation from sin. It's penalty and it's power in our lives. Now, John, um, he's going to address what is the fruit of repentance for the rebellious person? Uh, Look at 10 through 14. It says, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he said to them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also, notorious criminals in their day, often listed among prostitutes uh, and the, the most heinous of people in society. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to him, collect no more taxes than you're authorized to do. Soldiers, often corrupt police who would extort and manipulate, abuse their power. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to him, do not extort money from anyone uh, by threats or by false accusation, but be content with your wages. What he's saying is the fruit of repentance for the rebellious is that there is now generosity where there was once greed. There's now honesty where there was once deception. There is now integrity where there had been manipulation. And I want you to see that a heart and a mind that's truly repented and trusts Christ um, will result in a life of fruit, of obedience to Christ, right? A, A life and behaviors of repentance. When the king comes, we repent of our rebellion, and Jesus calls us to obedience and to joy. City, I love that this church is full of ex-rebels. This room is filled with former addicts, alcoholics. Some of y'all are out on work release. Welcome. So glad to have you here. Uh, Talking with my friend Robert, first hour, and the alarm went off on the back. He said, whoa, I almost started running. He was like, not on parole. It was just muscle reaction, right? I, I love that there's rebels in our church and that have seen Jesus. They've repented of their sin. They're now face turned towards Christ, back towards sin, pursuing him, repenting of their sin. But guess what? The rebels are not just locked up in prison. They're not just the alcoholics and the addicts. It's all of us. We are all rebels in our heart. We are all rebels. And guess what? Um, Repentance is an ongoing thing. Some people falsely say you repent once in your life. It's when you become a Christian and you turn and you never sin again. I say, let me talk to your wife because I doubt it, right? let me follow you one day. Saw you on the street. No, uh, repentance is important when we first believe. That's how you become a Christian. You repent, you turn, you say, I'm wrong. I was my own Lord pursuing my own things. I'm wrong. Jesus, you're my king. Save me, lead me. I'm a Christian. Happens once and and, uh, you're in. Justification is once for all, right? But then the walk of discipleship as a follower of Jesus is continual repentance because you'll go, oh, guess what? Oh, there was that sin too right? It was pretty easy to repent when I was first a Christian. I I had this whole list of like some lustful behaviors, um, some greed, pride, selfishness, uh, different things. Okay, definitely need to turn from that. Then you journey with Christ and you realize, oh, there's like this other area of sin in my life, huh? 
Like, I thought I was really selfless, and then I got married and figured out how selfish I was. And so you repent of that. And then you're doing pretty good, and then you have a kid. And you're like, oh, I haven't even got started. <laughs> Honey, can you get up with that child? I just need 20, you know? And then God sanctifies you, and you have a second kid and a third kid. <sighs> if you want sanctified, start having babies, okay? And my wife and I are going to be very sanctified. But that's the pattern of the Christian life that we would repent. We repent of our rebellion. We realize, you know what? Selfishness doesn't lead to joy. Giving my life away like Christ gave away his life brings me the ultimate joy and satisfaction that I was looking for. So let me ask you, church, friends, get introspective. What are the sins of rebellion that you need to repent of this year? Maybe you'd become a Christian today. This would be the first time you'd repent. You would acknowledge, I'm a sinner. I'm straight. I'm a rebel. need your grace. Jesus, I trust in you. Maybe you're a long-time Christian, but there's the habitual pattern, the sin, the struggle. What is it you need to say, I'm going to have a change of mind and a change of heart that results in a change of behavior. Jesus, I'm going to trust you that what you offer is better. Would you turn from your sins with me this spring and follow Jesus? Now, in closing, uh, City Light, I would say this. Religion and rebellion are two sides of a cliff. We could fall off either side. Uh, We could be the religious, self-righteous church. We could be the rebellious, drunk church, right? We could be the religious, self-righteous people. We could be the rebellious people. But there's a third option. The third option is the gospel. People who are undeserving recipients of the free grace of God. That we would walk by faith in him. We'd be quick to repent of sin. Own it when we do it. Turn to him and walk by faith in Jesus Christ. City Light, would that be us? A repentant church. Would that become a new good word in our vocabulary? Learning how to repent. Accountable to each other. Hey, I'm struggling in this area. Pray for me. I need to repent of this in this year. I need to trust Christ for more and for better this year. Uh, would we be a church that repents? And, uh, you know, I'm not one to make New Year's resolutions. I ask everybody what theirs are, and it's not really fair because I don't really have any. Uh, but as I thought about the church, um, I, I want you guys to know my New Year's resolution for the church is not to buy a piece of property or to grow a certain percentage or work on Chris's wardrobe or any number of different things we all need help with around here. Um, <laughs> You know what I think is going to make 2015 a good year for us is if more than ever, the eyes of our church are on Jesus. That it would come off of the sin of our rebellion, off of our religious pride, and we would say, man, we love Christ. He did for us what we could never do. That more than ever, through Luke and whatever else we're going to study, that we would learn to treasure, find life in worship, seek, savor, experience, trust, and triumph in Jesus Christ this year. Would it be so? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, you are better than every, every other option on this earth. God, we have been duped into religion and pride. We've been duped into rebellion. But would you open our eyes? Would we hear the voice of John the Baptist saying, Repent, the king has come. Reorient everything in your life around this new kingdom reality. And would we get a taste of the kingdom of heaven here? Hearts that are bowed down to King Jesus, worshiping you, all eyes and attention on you. Oh, Lord, make that true of us in 2015, in our individual lives and in our church. We pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.